Well, we're going to go ahead and continue on in our series of who we are as a church. And we do this every year. If you guys have been here for many years, you're going, oh, not this one again. But uh, even if you've heard this message many times before, um, I think we can always get something from it. The thing that, that every year when this comes up, I always think to myself, like, man, am I really going to do this one again? And because uh, I, I worry, like, you guys have all heard it before, or many of you have heard it before. Is it going to be the same thing over and over? And, and uh, I'm always reminded of, of Two, two things usually happen. So one, I'm reminded, as it says, I think in First Peter, where Peter says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm always willing to stir you up by way of reminder. Sometimes we need to be reminded of these things, even the basic stuff. And two, it, it never fails that somebody always comes up and tells me what they're getting and how much these messages touch them. And oftentimes there's people that have never heard them before. And so I'm always encouraged to keep doing them, even though part of me is going, oh, are they going to want to come? Am I going to have nobody want to listen? Are they going to fall asleep? But the truth is, is that one, every time I read God's word, I get something new out of it. So I hope that you will get the same this morning. And two, sometimes we just need a reminder of those simple, basic things. And what I want to remind everyone here this morning is that when we come together, we're not just a group of like-minded individuals getting together. But the reality is, is that we are a family. And as families, that means that we need to be aware of how we're supposed to interact with one another, how we're supposed to treat one another. The truth is, is that we should probably be careful how we treat everybody. But as we're going to see, particularly in the body of Christ, we need to be aware of how we treat one another, make sure we're showing each other honor and respect and just loving one another. And the truth is, is that how to behave in the body of Christ is mentioned over and over and over in the New Testament. Matter of fact, I'm going to be hitting on a bunch of scriptures just a little bit because there's so many instances of, of uh, how we're supposed to relate to one another, how we're supposed to treat one another in, in, in the New Testament. And if I tried to get them all in here, or if I spent any length of time on any of them, we'd be here for a very long time. But the thing is, as I've noticed, is that we tend to forget how to treat one another, how to behave with one another when we start to get close to one another. It's just like in a real family. You'll probably notice that you will say things to your spouse or to your kids or even worse, to your siblings that you would never say to another person, ever. And I've often wondered, what is, what is the deal with it? I know that there's some, the way my sister and I have treated each other in the past, if I treated any one of you guys like that or vice versa, we would not have a relationship at all. <laughs> and you probably notice that tree, and, and you'll probably find out that you've done it with your spouse or any of those things. And, and have you ever wondered, why do you treat people that are close to you so much worse than you would treat a stranger? And I think part of it is, is because you understand that they're going to love you unconditionally. And unfortunately, we take advantage of that. But that's not how it should be. The truth is, is that we should hold one another to higher standards as Christians. We should hold ourselves to a higher standard. And we should treat people in such a way that we respect who they are as well. It's often interesting to me that we hold other people to a higher standard than we hold ourselves. And we hold other Christians to an even higher standard still. And we tend to judge other people at their worst, but judge ourselves at our best. And in the church, you've probably seen it from time to time, is, is we can treat each other pretty poorly. There was a guy by Dwight, his name was Dwight Carlson, and he wrote a book that said, Why Do Christians Shoot Their Wounded? And you see that we do that all the time. When somebody falls, instead of helping them get back up, we just shut them and push them away. Or when someone comes in and they don't um, look like us, or they don't act like us, or they're a little bit different, instead of treating them with love and respect, we, try, we tend to treat them differently. There was a story about a pastor who one time uh, dressed up as a homeless person and went into his church, and he was appalled at how his church treated him just because he was homeless. And the truth is, is that that's not how we should be treating people, particularly those in the body of Christ. We need to be treating people with love and respect. And when someone falls, we help them get back up instead of just kicking them while they're down. And the truth is that 
we're going to see how we interact with people in the church impacts our effectiveness outside of the church. Amen? So let's get started. Matthew 10, verses 40 through 41, it says, Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is righteous, a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. One of the things I know for a fact is that how you receive people impacts what you'll receive from people. And it's a, a silly or contrite example, but as if, you, if, you, if you asked an AC repairman over to fix your plumbing, you might get a result different than you intended. If you got some broken plumbing and you received the AC repairman in to fix your plumbing, you're not going to get the results you want because you're not receiving what you should be receiving. You want, you want the results of your plumbing fixed? You need to receive a plumber as a plumber to come fix your plumbing. And I remember when I was growing up, my uh, best friend's dad was a pastor. And I, I thought I was so clever because, you know, I read that, uh, that part in the Bible that says we're all equal. And I, I took that a little bit out of context. I thought, well, he's no better than me. Why do I have to call him pastor? And I would just call him by his first name all the time. I never called him pastor. And uh, I, I recognized that what I was doing was actually placing him in a position equal to me in my own head, which means that I could never receive anything from him as a pastor because I didn't see him as a pastor. I was pitting him on a level equal to me, which limited what he could impart to me in my life. And I wonder... How much did I lose out on going back then? All because I had some little ego. I was a teenager acting like an idiot and refusing to understand that he was who he was, that God put him where God put him, and that I was supposed to see him as something else other than someone equal to me. And matter of fact, I've had many people come to me asking, do I have to call you pastor? And I, I, the truth is, I don't care what you call me. You can call me whatever you want. I'm not going to be hurt or I'm not going to be offended because I'm not a pastor because one of you guys calls me a pastor. I'm a pastor because that's what God called me to be. God's the one that said you're going to be a pastor, not anybody in this room. But I do believe how you see me will impact what kind of impact I can make in your life. If you see me, like I saw my pastor as just an equal and that's all I'll ever be able to be to you. But if you see me as your pastor, then I can impart more. I can do more. How we receive people, like the scripture says, listen, if you receive a prophet because he's a prophet, you're going to receive a prophet's reward. If you receive a righteous person because he's a righteous person, you'll receive a righteous person reward. That makes sense. But you know what? If you receive a prophet as only a righteous person, what do you think you're going to get? Just the righteous person's reward. How we receive people impacts how we're going to, to get anything from them. And this just doesn't go for the pastor either. It goes for others in the church. How you view one another is going to, to impact what you receive from one another. If you view somebody as your brother or your sister in Christ, you're going to be able to receive much more from them than if you, refer, if you see them as an inferior or as an outsider or somebody else. You're more likely to be able to receive encouragement or correction from somebody you view properly than somebody that you think that you're higher than or you lord over or you see them as somebody else or something else. This is especially important for those who are younger than you. The truth is, is that um, as people, we tend to associate age with wisdom or, or level of authority. And in the church, that's not always the case. And I thank God that now I'm speaking in generalities because you guys have all been great with me. I've never had an issue with somebody looking down on me because that I'm, I'm younger than them, and I'm grateful for that, and I thank you for that. It's something that Paul actually had to warn Timothy about. And he said, hey, listen, don't let them despise you because of your age. I've always found that interesting. That wasn't actually a warning to the people that were doing the despising. That was a warning to Timothy saying, you don't let them despise you because of their age. But the truth is, is that sometimes we have people, 
that are put in authority above us or or positions next to us that that if we're not careful, if we don't view them, particularly in the church, as God intends us to view them, we can limit what God intended them to do in our lives and the impact that they can make. Amen? If you only see people as something other than what God intended them to be, you're never going to receive what God intended you to receive from them. You might miss out on the gifts that God has gifted them. Could you imagine what we would miss out on a Sunday morning if people came in and said, oh man, Blake and Medea, they're just too young to be leading worship. I thank God that's not happening here, but it's always good to be reminded to be careful that those things don't creep in our life. Amen? Then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 15, it says, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. One of the things we need to uh, be certain that we're doing in the church is honoring one another as co-laborers in Christ. The truth is, is that we all have the very same goal, and that's to see the kingdom of heaven expanded and lives saved, people coming to Christ. And that means that we don't need to just get along as members of the church, but we really need to appreciate and love one another. Anybody ever had somebody that, that you work with that you kind of just grin and bear it? You don't really like working with them. You don't really, you, you, just, you just, you put up with it because you have to. As members of the body of the Christ and as members of a family, we should be striving for more than that. We should actually be striving to have good relationships with one another and trying to figure out what those problems are and work past those issues instead of just grinning and bearing it. The truth is, as the scripture says, that, that we need to respect those who labor among us and we need to esteem them very high, the people around us. And we should do everything out of, everything that we should do should be out of love for one another. You know, it says the tears, it says we need to, especially talking about those who are, are over you in the Lord. And that's not just me. There's many relationships in this church where somebody has taken a senior relationship and we need to respect those people who are, who are teaching us, who are encouraging us. And we need to be encouraging and esteeming them as well. And the other thing for those of us who are leaders, we need to be very careful about is that if you're going to admonish somebody, which means to, to correct or to, to encourage somebody to a better way, you need to have a relationship with them. It doesn't make any sense to begin to, to try to, to, to correct somebody that you don't have a relationship with because all you're going to do is offend them and you're not going to make any kind of difference. It's the reason why that uh, as Christians, if we just go out on the street and tell people how awful they are and they're going to hell and they need to straighten up, that's why that doesn't work. You don't have a relationship with them. They don't care what you say. It doesn't make a difference to them. In order to admonish someone, to correct someone, to teach them, you have to have a relationship with them. And then in addition, we have to be very careful that we're not condemning one another because it's really easy to do that as well. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 through 26, it says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This has been one to me that seems to be one of the most unseen things out in the world. You see it on occasion, but here we're encouraged. If somebody succeeds and they're rejoicing, we're to rejoice with them. If they suffer, we suffer with them. But out in the world, particularly in the job market, as I've seen, when somebody gets promoted, it's not uncommon to find the guy down, down the, the hallway going, why did they get it and not me? Why is it that they got it? And instead of rejoicing with the person that succeeded, they begin to gripe and complain. Or somebody, maybe the, a couple finds out they're pregnant, and instead of people rejoicing with them, they're, 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 they're mad at God because they got pregnant, and they've been trying for years, and they weren't able to get pregnant. You know, and then we see that kind of stuff in the church. Or somebody gets hurt, and instead of, instead of empathizing with them and being there with them, they go, well, better them than me. 
That's actually the result of this uh, uh, me-first mentality that we have going on in our society right now. But the truth is, is that as Christians, particularly among those in the body of Christ, we should rejoice when other people are rejoicing. Even if you have been trying for a baby for years and it's not working for whatever reason, you can't get pregnant, and a couple that hasn't been trying at all gets pregnant, we should rejoice with them and not get upset. If somebody gets a job, even though you've been looking for a job and you can't get a better job and they get a great job, rejoice with them for what God's doing in their life. And when people hurt, we hurt with them as well. I heard a, had somebody call me up and, and tell me they, were, they actually were concerned with what was going on. They met this young lady and they never met her before. And uh, she said, I just felt like God wanted me to pray for this lady. She says, I still don't know her name. I don't, know, I don't have any way to contact her. I don't know her name. She says, but God just put it on my heart to pray for this lady. And, and I began to pray for her, and I was just weeping as I was praying for her, and I didn't know what was going on. And, and, I, and anyway, we left, and she says, but over the last few days, I just find myself weeping for this lady. I don't even know who she, what her name is, how to contact her. And she's like, <laughs> she, says, she says, is it possible for people's... Uh, feelings to, to wear off or to rub off on me or I can absorb their feelings and so well you can't absorb them in the sense of like you get them and they lose them but when I began to talk to her I began to realize that God put somebody on her heart and she was hurting with this person and the truth is, is that's how we should be in the body of Christ for sure and this was outside of the body of Christ this, this lady uh, as far as she knows wasn't a Christian but God put her on her heart and and the funny thing is is that we probably all prayed for that. God, let me see people as you see them. Let me feel with your heart. Let me love with your heart. And then we get shocked when it happens. But that's what it was. She was empathizing with this person because God put her on her heart. And she was upset because this person was upset. And Jesus was the greatest example of this. When, when Lazarus went in the tomb, Jesus walks up. And he sees everybody around him, his friends, his family, crying because Lazarus is dead. He says, Jesus wept. And it's amazing to me because it's not like Jesus went, was crying for a while and then went, wait a minute, I have an idea. I'm going to bring him back from the dead. No, the reality was is that Jesus stayed in the other city where he was for a few extra days to make sure Lazarus was good and dead before he came back. So if Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, why did he cry? Why was he weeping? It certainly wasn't for Lazarus because Lazarus was about to be back to life. But the reality is, is that his friends were suffering around him. And when they were suffering, Jesus suffered with them. He wept because they were weeping. He was the example for us. The truth is, is that when people rejoice, we should rejoice with them. And when they suffer, we should come right alongside them and encourage them, hopefully. Amen? Romans 12, 15 says it quite clearly. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. As a body, we should operate as one unit as well. Success for one is success for the whole body, just like in your own personal body. You lose weight, that's good for your heart. It all works together. Failure is failure for the whole body as well. The truth is, is that when one fails, we all fail. If you uh, can't see, you're much more often likely to stub your toe. Somebody walked around in the dark, one part of your body's not working because it's dark, your eyes don't work. It hurts something else. And the thing is, too, we need to remember is that when these things happen, we would never cut off a toe because we stubbed it because it's having some issues. Or cut off your hand because you have a hangnail. All too often in the body of Christ, we have a member of the body hurt or in pain or fall or whatever it is, and instead of encouraging them and lifting them back up, we just try to cut them off. That's not how it should be with us. We should rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, and operate as one unit. Because by separating ourselves, we actually make ourselves weaker. 
The truth is, is that God puts everybody in the body for a reason. They have gifts and talents and abilities that God intends to use. And when we cut them out of our lives, we actually limit what God wanted to do through them in our lives. Amen. In John 13, 34 through 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This should be our calling card. The way that we love one another, as I talked about earlier, we should love everybody, but particularly in the body of Christ. And if we don't love one another, it'll actually impact our ability to make a difference outside of the body of Christ because people see this. If people look into, look into a church and go, man, they treat, they treat people on there just as bad or worse than they do on the outside, why would I want to be a part of that? But it says here that, listen, they should know who we are by our love for one another. When I was in the army, they told me that you had to be careful when you went out, particularly if you're stationed overseas or whatever, because people would know that you were in the military. And even in the U.S., depending on where you go, they said they will know that you're in the military. And the reason they know is because after you've gone through basic and boot camp, you've been in for a while, you walk a little differently. You hold your hands a little differently. You talk a little differently. Your haircut is most likely a little different than everybody else's. You, are, you look a little different. People will look at you and they'll know that you're in the military. And they said to be careful because in some places that can cause you problems. You can go down to some places in Mexico um, Tijuana was a big one, and, and, and as, a, as a soldier, you're much more likely to get messed with in Tijuana than you are just as a regular U.S. citizen, although probably not a good idea either way. <laughs> but that was one of the things you had to be careful for, because if they knew you were a soldier, they would treat you differently. And people can tell even when you're not in uniform. But you know what? People should be able to tell that you're a Christian even when you're not in uniform. Even when they shouldn't be able to say, oh, that's a Christian because they're leaving church. It should be a Thursday lunchtime and they see the way that you treat others and they can know that you're a Christian. They should see the love on us. Matter of fact, if people get a little too close to us, they should get a little love on them. This love is the very nature of God. 1 John 4, it says, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. When we were born again, our very nature was changed. We get a new identity, and that should result in us loving others, particularly those in the body of Christ. And Jesus commanded this of us as well. John 15, 12 through 13, he says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. Oh, I just skipped a verse. John 13, 34 through 35. And we talked about this. People know you love my disciple. Next one. Sorry, I'm all over the place this morning. John 15, 12 to 13. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. First off, Jesus commanded us to love one another. This wasn't just a good idea. He wasn't just hopeful that we would love one another. He says, that, no, you are, this is a commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. But it's not just as simple as that because he qualifies what that love looks like. He says, listen, the commandment is that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. And then he explains what that means. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's the level of love that is expected of us for one another, that we'd be willing to even lay down our life for one another. And it's strange to us because we live in a world where love is, is so weirdly used and overused and and used incorrectly and we love everything right we love our cars we love food we we love swimming some of us love the hot arizona sun but the love that god's talking about he's not talking about that kind of love not not like i really like something but he's talking about agape love which is a god kind of love it's a self-sacrificing love that's the kind of love that he's commanding here, to love one another. That means that you look to your left and look to your right. You're supposed to love one another like Jesus loved you, willing to give his life for them. So to help us understand how to do that and understand why to do that, is, is we have to talk about why should we love 
one another. Colossians 3, 12 through 16 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against you, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You must also forgive. You notice it says must, not you should. You must forgive. And above all, all these, above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness and hearts in your hearts to God. So why should we love one another? The first reason that we should love one another is because of who he is. Because of who God is. He forgave us, so we should forgive others. He loved us, so we should love others. Because that's who God is. God is love. That's why we should love others. It says, let the peace of heart of Christ rule in our hearts which binds everything in perfect harmony as well. These things is that, that we, we, we forgive others as they, because God's forgiven us. And we put on love because of Christ. We let his, his peace rule in our hearts. All of these things we have because of who he was. And because he does these things, we should do these things. The reality is, is that we are made in the likeness of God. In the image of God, that doesn't mean you look like him physically. That means you are made with his characteristics. Forgiveness, love, generosity, all of these things are the things that we should do. Amen? And then the other reason, the second reason we should love one another is, is because of who we are. Colossians 3, 8 through 10 says this, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. All these things here, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying, those are all things that our old self used to do. Before you were born again, that's the things of this world. That's the things that people in this world do. But when you were born again, the scripture says, you know what, put all of that old stuff off. Put on the new self. When you're born again, you're made brand new, and that means that you should look different, talk different, walk different. How we treat each other should now be different. It doesn't include any of these things anymore. But instead, all those practices are set aside when we put on the new self. We should love one another because we're not who we used to be. But instead, we are brand new. All of these things destroy relationships and they destroy families. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. And maybe the worst is lying to one another. These things destroy relationships. They destroy families. And that's not how it should be in the body of Christ. Amen? This isn't who we are, so we shouldn't act this way. And the third reason we should love one another Talk about the first reason is because of who God is. The second reason is because of who we are. And the third reason is because of who they are. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. Regard him thus no longer. When we look at people, we should see Christ. We don't evaluate them according to who they are or the things that they've done, but according to what Christ has done in them. I said earlier, it's so often that as Christians, we tend to evaluate other people at their worst and ourselves at our best. When the truth is, is in the body of Christ, we should evaluate others as Christ in them. They're brand new. You see, a person's value has nothing to do with what they've done or what they've not done, what they've accomplished or how they've failed. A person's value is determined by how much somebody is willing to pay for them, and Christ was willing to give his life for them. So when we look at one another, how do we see people? Do we only see their actions? Do we only see the things that they say or do, or do we actually see Christ in them? Recognizing that they're just as valuable as we are, not because of 
uh, of anything we or they have done, but because of what Christ has done. Did you know that people are much more likely to give their life for a stranger than for somebody they know if they, that they think poorly of that person? They've done studies on it. <laughs> you could be sitting on, the, on a train, and if somebody fell in front of the train, you're more likely to jump down there and risk your life for that person, even if they're a terrible person. Say they were a murderer and they fell in the train. You would still jump down there and save them if you didn't know who they were. But if it was somebody you knew and you didn't like, you might just not be willing to give your life for them. Truth is, that's kind of how we should see people always. As if we don't know them. Because when we look at people, we shouldn't know them. We should only know Christ in them. Amen. So we don't evaluate as, as, bodies, uh, as people in the body of Christ. We should be very careful that we're not evaluating people by their performance, but what Christ has done in them. See them as Christ sees them. And that's a difficult one to do. Luke 17, 3-4 says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So Pastor Wayne, okay, I want to see them as Christ sees them, but what if they are just terrible people? What if they're always just doing awful things? They're sinning all the time. Here's your answer. You forgive them. What if they do it again? Well, if they repent you, you forgive them again. What if they do it again? The answer is the same. You, 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 you forgive them again. But what if they do it a fourth time? Well, you forgive them again. Anybody want to guess what happens after the fifth time? Or the sixth time? Or the seventh time? The reality is, is that as long as they're repenting, we keep on forgiving. Now, I want to be clear. This doesn't mean you, if, if you are uh, in an abusive relationship, you can forgive them and not stay in the situation where you might be abused. We can forgive people, and if they're not repentant, it may mean the relationship's not restored. And there's a whole lot more to this down the road. If people are unrepentant and they're constantly hurting people, there are things that, that as a church will enact that we'll do. There is disciplinary things, a church discipline that has to happen with those things. But if somebody is falling and repenting, then we help them get back up. And if their falling is, is hurting you, maybe we don't make sure that you're not in that same situation anymore, but we still forgive them. And we do it over and over and over again as long as they repent and get back up. There's no limit to the amount of times. And that seems crazy, but in Matthew 18, 21 through 22, it says, And Peter came up to him and said to him, this is Peter speaking to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Or other translations say seven times 70 times. You see, in, in the Jewish uh, uh, religion before, before Jesus, you only had to forgive somebody three times. That was limited. They did it a fourth time, you didn't have to forgive them anymore. So Peter thinks he's being clever. I'm going to show Jesus how spiritual I am. I'm going to do th four more times over than the, 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 the requirements of the law. So how many times? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, I don't say to you seven times. I say seven times, 70 times. And what Jesus is really trying to say is, you just keep doing it. That was an expression, an idiomatic expression to say, you just keep doing it over and over. There was no limit to the amount of times that you're to forgive somebody. Because it's not amount, about the amount of times, it's about the heart of the matter. Can you imagine if God said, you got three shots and then I don't forgive you anymore? What if he just said seven times? What if he said 77 times? You're still going to run out of times. What if it was seven times 70 times, 490 times? You're still going to run out. Might run out by Tuesday. <laughs> the thing is, is that we forgive in the same way that God forgives us. We should have that same natural response to others. 
Like I said, I want to be clear. If you're being hurt or abused, that doesn't mean stay in the situation to continue being abused. You can forgive and still move yourself out of the situation. I also want to be clear that forgiving does not mean saying that what they did was okay. By forgiving somebody, you're not saying that, you know what, what you did was no big deal, it's, it's not a problem, everything's okay. That's not what you're saying. Because the truth is, forgiveness has nothing to do with the other person, it has everything to do with you. If you don't forgive, it's not going to impact the other person one bit. But it will impact you, it'll cause bitterness to creep up in your heart. So when someone does fall, this is what it says we should do. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. If Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, what kind of transgressions? Any transgression. What if it's a really bad one? It's any transgression. There's not a certain limit. If they're caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, if somebody falls, it doesn't matter how bad it is, we're to, to try to restore them, not to just kick them out. And it doesn't matter what the sin is, what the failure is, no matter how bad it is. Now, depending on it, we are going to take precautions, right? We're going to be wise, but we're still going to try to restore people. And we're called to bear their burdens and to help them out. But it also says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. There was once a guy I was reading about and uh, uh, he had never been tempted or dealt or even viewed pornography his entire life. And he kept hearing these stories about men, you know, and this is, a, this is happening in the church and about men struggling with pornography and addiction to pornography. And he, he didn't understand he didn't understand it because it never had never been an issue for him. Matter of fact, he'd never seen it all. He was never tempted. So the first thing that he did is he's like, you know what? I'm going to help these men. And he put together a group, a study group, to help these men. Right? That's what it says to bear one another's burdens, to walk along these men, to help restore them. And for several weeks, that's what he did. They got together. He would encourage them, and he was helping these men. But after hearing what these men are going through, after several weeks and maybe a few months, he began to wonder, what is the big deal with this pornography that these guys keep talking about? I just don't get it. So what he did was is he went and he watched one to try to figure out what these guys were talking about. And unfortunately, that opened the gate, and he ended up becoming addicted to pornography himself. It says here, listen, when you're bearing one another's burdens, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. What this means is that when somebody falls, we're to walk alongside them. But if they're falling in an area where you struggle with, maybe you get somebody else to help them instead of yourself because we don't want to be tempted and fall in that same situation. This man, with every good intention, wanted to help these men, and he was doing a good job, but when he finally went to, he wasn't careful, and he let himself be tempted to see what this pornography was all about, and he got wrapped up in it, and he became one of the men that needed supported at that point. The truth is, is that we need to walk alongside one another, we need to encourage one another, we need to lift them up, but we also need to be very careful <laughs> that we are not ourselves falling into the same sin we're trying to save somebody else from, Amen. Another thing that we need to be doing as a church, uh, or as individuals in the church, is uh, be wary of, of what's going, how, how other people are dealing with us or perceiving us as well. In Matthew 5, 23 through 24, it says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is interesting to me because it doesn't say if you go to the altar and you realize that you have something against your brother, go and deal with it. It says no. If you're at the altar and you realize that somebody has something against you, set your gift down and go deal with it. Be reconciled to your brother. The reality is is that the Bible says as far as it depends on us, we should be at peace with all men. 
if you know somebody has a problem with you, if you, if you know that you've offended somebody, or you know that, that uh, somebody's taken offense even when you don't think that they should have, <laughs> we're supposed to deal with that. As a family, we should make sure that our relationships are strong. If we know that there's an issue, we don't hide from it, we don't run from it, instead we make it a priority to go ahead and straighten those things out, amen? Because the truth is, is that when there's unresolved issues in a family, that's when things start to creep up. That's when relationships start to be broken. And the problem is, is it never just stays there. It has this tendency to fan out, and other people get involved, and churches have been destroyed because something simple wasn't taken care of. The reality is, is that we're all going to have problems with one another. We're going to have issues. We're going to offend one another. Lord knows I've offended many of you. And uh, the reality is, is that, that I probably, if I haven't, I probably will. Not intentionally. I'll never intentionally offend somebody. But the truth is, is that it happens. So the question is not... Will we hurt one another? Will we upset one another? Will we cause problems with one another? Because those things will happen. The question is, what will we do when it happens? Do we ignore it, or do we talk to one another? There have been at times that I have unintentionally offended people, and, uh, and they've not said anything to me, and our relationship is strained. And I have no idea why, because I didn't even realize I did something. And then there are other times where I've offended somebody, and they've come up and said, hey, this is what you did, and it really hurt when you did this. And when I find that out, like, I'm usually heartbroken, because I never want to hurt anybody. And I ask for forgiveness. And then it's done. It's amazing how just going to somebody and talking to them about it, you're able to resolve those issues and restore relationships that otherwise would have been broken. So I would encourage you, if I ever hurt you or offend you, come and talk to me about it, and I'll do the same to you. Because, and I hope that's the attitude you guys take towards one another as well, because that's how relationships stay strong. You work through those issues. And the reality is, is that offense is most often received, more often received than it's given. Most of the time when we offend one another, the person that did the offending has no idea that they did it. But we can nip that stuff in the butt if we just talk to one another. And if you know somebody has something against you, the scripture here says, listen, even if you're standing at the altar of God with your gift, you know what? Put it down and go deal with that situation. So church, that's one of the things that we need to make a priority. As if we're bothering one another, if we're upsetting one another, just talk to one another about it. And here's something that I want to tell everybody that will change how these interactions go. Because here's what usually happens when somebody comes up and says, listen, something you did hurt me. Our natural response is to become defensive. That's our natural response. It's what we all do. They tell you that you did something that hurt. No, I didn't do that. No, you're crazy. You're thinking, no, and, and the, well, you did this. Or anybody ever had that happen? We try to turn it around. Well, you did this. Well, there's a couple things that needs to happen in those situations. One, if, you, if, if somebody comes up to you and says that, that, that you hurt them, that you offended them, you don't get to decide if you did or did not. They do. They're the one that was hurt. So even if you don't think that you did something wrong or they have a right to be offended, it doesn't matter. Just say you're sorry. It's such a simple thing. Just apologize. And don't do the, uh, I'm sorry if I hurt you. That's like the worst apology ever. What do you mean if I hurt you? You did hurt them. They just told you, not if. Just say you're sorry. But what if you do have something against them? What if, what if they come to you and you say, well, the reason I did this is because of this. We'll deal with the first one first. And then you say, okay, but I want you to know this. This is what you did to hurt me. And then you deal with that one. But genuinely apologize if you hurt somebody, whether you did it intentionally or not, whether you think they should be hurt or not. Because how they feel has nothing to do with how you feel. Just apologize and move forward. In 1 Thessalonians 5.11, we're told to encourage one another. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
1 Thessalonians 5 actually is talking about the, the second coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And because we know that Christ is coming, one of the things that we're encouraged to do is help build one another up to be ready. Church, that's another thing that we need to do in this body of Christ is encouraging one another. Encouraging one another, not just in the sense of like, yeah, you're doing okay, but like, listen, like Christ is coming back. We don't know when he's coming back. You need to be, to be walking with the Lord, encouraging one another to be in the Lord, to be excited for his return, and but ready for his return. Amen? Galatians 6, 9 through 10 says, let us not weary, grow weary of doing good. I always find it interesting. If the Bible says to you, don't grow weary of doing something, that means it's possible to grow weary of doing something. So he says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I don't know if you guys have recognized this in your life, but relationships are hard work. It's very easy to want to give up, particularly if you're feeling like it's one-sided. Have you ever felt like you're the one always doing good? After a while, you just get tired of doing good. Scripture says, listen, don't be weary of doing good. Because in due season, you'll reap if you don't give up. It's very easy to, to want to give up. But we're encouraged to just keep going, pushing through. And what's helpful, all those things we've talked about, particularly in an area where maybe you're doing good to someone, but you're not seeing anything in return. You feel like you're just spinning your wheels. Well, don't look at what they're doing. Look at Christ in them. It'll make it a whole lot easier to keep doing good. Because it's very easy to grow tired of dealing with the same issue over and over and over. But we're told not to give up. And then I want you to notice something here. It says we're to do good to everyone, but especially those who are of the household of faith. We should be doing good to everyone, but particularly those who are in the body of Christ, we should be going out of our way to make sure that our relationships are strong, that we are doing good to one another, that we're loving one another, we're encouraging one another, that we are walking alongside one another. And then finally, we'll end here today. In 1 Peter 4, 8-9, he says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. He says, don't stop loving one another. There are going to be times where you are tempted to stop loving one another, or more likely than not, it'll be a gradual thing, and you'll wake up one day realizing that relationships are strained, and you're not loving like you should. We wouldn't be told to keep doing it earnestly if it wasn't possible to let it slip away. But he says, listen, keep loving one another earnestly. And if you'll do this, it'll cover a multitude of sins. And this has always been strange to me because I read this and go, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was enough. How could we cover any kind of sin if Jesus paid for all sin? But then I recognize that there are a couple parts to sin. There are the, there's the, the legal requirement of sin that you have to deal with. We are forgiven because of what Christ did. When we stand before God, no matter what, our, what sins we, we commit, what we've done, we're going to stand before him with boldness and confidence because we are righteous because of what Jesus did. So as far as punishment for sin or as far as judgment for sin jesus took care of that but there is a reality that there's still a consequence to sin that is very real in this world if you murder somebody you can be forgiven as far as you standing before god you are clean you're righteous just as good as everyone who hadn't murdered somebody but you still might spend the rest of your life in jail because that's the consequence of your sin that you have to deal with. Now, when we look at this in the, the context of a relationship, if I do something to hurt somebody, I sin against them, they can forgive me. And God will forgive me. 
but there still may be a consequence of that sin. And that's where love comes in. Because the reality is, is if somebody hurts you, it's not just something we say. It really hurts. It really impacts us. But if we love them like Christ loves them, that love can help to cover that sin, that hurt in our life. That love can help us overcome. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about forgiveness or salvation. He's talking about relationships. Keep loving one another. Because if you love one another, it'll cover a multitude of sins that you might commit against one another. And he says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That means we're actually supposed to get together. You can't show hospitality to somebody if you're not in the same general vicinity. It's hard to show hospitality to somebody if you're not ever getting together with one another. One of the ways that families interact is they get together, they spend time together. And he says, listen, show hospitality to another without grumbling. That means one, invite people over your house and go, man, I can't believe I have to invite somebody over. I'm going to do it because Pastor Wayne said it's something we should do, but I just don't really want to do it. I don't like these people. They're annoying. They're going to eat all my food. That's the kind of grumbling that you want to stay away from. The truth is love should make you want to do those things. The other grumbling we should stay away from is, man, Pastor Wayne wants us to go over to Jan's house after church, and I don't want to go. I got other stuff to do. I really want to go home. I got stuff to do. I got house to clean, hair to wash. I got football to watch. There's all kinds of stuff. We don't need to grumble like that either. Get together. Enjoy one another's company. TiVo the football game. You can watch it later. How can we imitate Christ, which is something we've been commanded to do without showing love to one another? The reality is is that if we would just get ourselves out of the way, put on our new selves, let Christ live through us, we're going to see Jesus' commandment to love one another just naturally happen. In church, we're a family. Let's do all that we can to live that out to the fullest. Amen.